Well, friends, this is our final week studying the Gospel of John together. We're not going to do the last chapter, so if you just can't stop reading John, feel free to study that one on your own. This morning, we're going to look at two more resurrection appearances that tie together everything John has been telling us throughout this book. One of these appearances is John's version of Pentecost, but it has a really confusing ending. And the other appearance is when Jesus appears to doubting Thomas. But I'm going to suggest that maybe this encounter isn't what we think it is. As is typical with our dear St. John, in order to fully get what happens at the end, we're going to look back at what happened in the middle and at the beginning. Because John is not linear or technical or literal. John points out the patterns and cycles in our lives. He encourages us to embrace symbolism and get a little bit more comfortable with mystery because the divine life is something to be experienced, even if it's not fully understood. John calls us forward, always on a spiritual quest, fulfilled, and yet always seeking more. One of our UCC forebears, the pilgrim John Robinson, said, I am persuaded that the Lord has yet more light and truth to break forth out of his holy word. Jesus is that word. And as we wrap up this particular series, let's open our minds to the light and truth that continue to break forth in the world. John chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, Jesus' disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet come to believe. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of God for all people. These things have been written so that you may believe. Belief has been the key response all the way through this Gospel of John. The truth is that the loving nature of God has been fully revealed in Jesus Christ, and our response to that revelation is to believe.
To believe means to have an active, personal allegiance to Jesus and to be ready for whatever he's going to do. It's the verb form of the noun faith. Faith or belief is never a noun in the Gospel of John. It's never something static that we have or possess. It's always a verb. It's always something we do. In English, we don't have a verb like faithing. But if we did, that's what we would have said the whole way through this book. The revelation is that Jesus is fully one with God, and the invitation is for us to put our faith in Jesus, to believe. And these final verses claim that it is possible for us to do that, even though we haven't experienced Jesus in the flesh. This book has only ever been for people in that situation. This was not an as-it-happened news account of the life of Jesus written for people who were there at the time. This book was written for the next generation, and the one after that, and the one after that, all the way down to us. This book was written for people who have never seen Jesus in the flesh, but are still included in his family. And the two stories this morning set the stage for how that's possible. In the first one, Jesus appears to his disciples, a bunch of them, not just the twelve, not just the leaders, a whole church full of people, both men and women, on Easter night. He had already appeared to Mary, and she had come to them with her testimony, I have seen the Lord. But it doesn't seem they did much in response to that testimony. Clearly, they didn't run out and tell the world, because here we find them huddled behind locked doors. Suddenly, they see Jesus standing among them. Pay careful attention to the process here because it's going to come up again. Jesus greets them with, peace be with you. He shows them his wounds, the marks of his love that he still carries even though he has been resurrected, because healing doesn't mean that we don't have any scars. And the disciples rejoice because they have seen Jesus and no one will take their joy from them. Remember, that's the scripture from last week. Then we have a Pentecost moment. John tells the story differently than Luke does. John doesn't leave 50 days between the resurrection and Pentecost. He's ready for the church to get busy. So in this story, Jesus does what? He breathes, not on them, as the translation says, but into them. This phrase, breathed into them, is used only once in the whole New Testament, and it's here. And when that happens, the first thing you want to ask yourself is, do we find this anywhere in the Old Testament? And the answer is yes, we do. John is deliberately trying to remind us of a couple of other stories. The first time we find this phrase is in Genesis 2, where the Creator breathes into the nostrils of the first human, bestowing the very breath of life. And the other time we find it is in Ezekiel 37, the story of the Valley of Dry Bones that we read during Advent. Remember, Ezekiel has a vision of a valley full of bones. And in his vision, at God's urging, he prophesies to the bones, and they reform into bodies. But there's no life in the bodies. So Ezekiel prophesies to the Ruach, the Hebrew word for breath, wind, and spirit, and it fills the lifeless bodies and they live. 
When Jesus breathes into the disciples, he fills them with the breath, the wind, the Holy Spirit of God, and it's like they are entirely new creations. And what does Jesus say to the disciples as this happens? Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this word for receive isn't sit there passively like a lump while something happens to you. No, this word for receive means to actively take hold of what's being offered to you. Reach out and grab it because this is how we are to respond to the new life that God offers to us. We actively take hold of it. Once the disciples have received the Holy Spirit, then and only then Jesus sends them out into the world as the source sent the word to continue his work of revealing the loving nature of God. And that's the point where we come to a verse which frankly is weird. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now I will say right up front that I am not a scholar of ancient languages. And really smart people who all love God disagree on what to do with this verse. So I just want to make a few observations. The verse, as it is translated here, seems like a radical departure from the way the rest of John's message is framed. And whenever you find that, you should feel free to question what you're reading. Now, I'm not going to go through all the arguments to get to a different translation because it has to do with conjugation of Greek verbs and it's confusing. Because I actually think there's a bigger point here. Here's what I think God wants to ask us this morning as we read this. What is your personal reaction when you come upon something like this? Do you trust that the good news is always even better than you think? Or does something like this derail the faith that's been building in you? Can you remain open and curious? Or do you feel anxious and clenchy? How do you respond when you read something challenging? Do you lean in or do you move away? I suggest to you this morning that your response might be a helpful gauge of how much you're trusting in God's love. For myself, I will testify that I continue to discover that the good news is always even better than I thought, even when I find a confusing verse. Now for Thomas. This guy usually gets a bad rap, but I really don't think that's fair. I want us to let him out into the light a little today. Let's look at the story. First, he wasn't with the disciples when Jesus appeared to them. We don't know why, but there's no reason to assume anything negative about him because of it. It's just John's way of setting up the story. When the whole community is together again, the disciples say to him, We have seen the Lord Notice this is exactly the same testimony that Mary gave that the disciples didn't do anything with. And Thomas doesn't say, no, you didn't. And he doesn't say, it's not true. He says, if I don't experience it for myself, I will not believe. And remember what believe means in this gospel. It means to enter into full relationship with Jesus. And then what? Well, Thomas doesn't give up. He keeps meeting with the rest of the disciples. And a week later, Jesus shows up again, just like he did before. He greets Thomas with peace be with you, just like he did with the others. He shows Thomas his wounds, just like he did with the others. 
Jesus gives Thomas exactly what he needs, just like he did with the others. And contrary to how we often read what happens next, Jesus does not shame Thomas. In fact, Jesus does not tell Thomas to stop doubting. There's a totally different Greek word for doubt. It's not the one we find here. Literally what Jesus says here is be not unbelieving. Instead, be believing. This is important because again, believing in John is not about cognitive processing. It's about relationship. Doubt and uncertainty are natural parts of our spiritual journey. It's normal. It means we're thinking and God wants us to think. But this moment here is about relationship, and there's no such thing as being halfway committed in a relationship. Jesus is inviting Thomas to come into the full relationship that is now possible with God through the resurrected and soon-to-be-ascended Jesus. And Thomas wholeheartedly accepts this invitation as demonstrated by his declaration, My Lord and my God! And then in the next phrase, Jesus steps outside the story. You know, in movies or TV or live theater, sometimes the actress will stop and talk to the audience. It's called breaking the fourth wall. And that's basically what happens when Jesus says, blessed are those who have not yet seen and still believe. He's not just talking to Thomas anymore. Jesus breaks the fourth wall and says to the original audience and to us, you don't have to see me in the flesh in order to enter into relationship with me. That's what the next paragraph is about, too. The testimony of Jesus, what we read, not only in this gospel, but in all the rest of the scriptures, opens the door for us. But the lesson of Thomas, and indeed the rest of the disciples, is that belief is personal. Someone else's testimony gets us started, but we can't have a vicarious relationship with Jesus. Young people, you don't have a relationship with Jesus through your parents. You make your own choice to believe, and your relationship with Jesus is totally unique to you. Jesus gives Mary Magdalene and the disciples and Thomas exactly what they need to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Now, as you hear me say that, stay with me here in the Gospel of John. When I say personal relationship with Jesus, at this moment, we are not talking about the redemption of individual sins that is often touted in American Christianity. Salvation is universal. It is for all, and it is already accomplished. And relationship with God is always personal. Jesus came to save the whole world and to make it possible for every single person to share in the divine life. All through this gospel, Jesus has been having very personal encounters with Nicodemus, with Fatina, the Samaritan woman at the well, with the man born blind, with Mary, with Martha, and with Lazarus. And now we recognize that all of those were stories designed to point us toward the reality of a personal encounter with the divine life here and now without ever seeing Jesus in the flesh. God is love, and we can experience that love on a very personal level. 
Amen.